Father in heaven, we are grateful for this opportunity to come together in freedom in this place to open your word and to uh, listen for the voice of your spirit. We pray that you will be present here in this seminar this morning and help us to be transformed as a result of what is said, not only in this meeting, Lord, we know that uh, all around this complex, uh, young people are searching to know you better, uh, to better understand how to draw close to you and how to serve you. And we pray that you'll be with every seminar, with every speaker and every listener, and that there'll be a revival during this weekend. And so please bless, Lord, be present here. Please forgive the sins of the one who is to teach and to speak. And I pray that you'll all give us ears to hear. In Jesus' name we ask, amen. amen. If you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn to the book of Mark. And I'm, I'm starting at the beginning. In serving the Lord, in uh, witnessing, and whatever you might do with your lives, it all begins with uh, the first step, which is coming to the Lord just the way you are. Now, I always like to, I say this over and over again, because it's a simple truth, but it always helps us to just keep the main thing the main thing. There are two priorities in life that are summarized in what we call the great invitation, Matthew chapter 11, and the great commission, Matthew chapter 28. Great invitation is come unto me. Great commission is go. We come to the Lord, and that is your vertical love relationship. You go for the Lord, that's the horizontal. Two great commands. Love the Lord, it's this love relationship. Love your neighbor. And you notice this forms a cross. It's this love relationship. You come to Christ, you go for Christ. Now this is something that doesn't happen once in your life. It should happen in a profound way at conversion, but it's something that you do daily. Life is a daily drawing to of Christ, coming to Christ, and it is a daily going to tell others, love for God, love for your brother. And that really summarizes what the Christian experience is. And virtually all the problems that we have are going to revolve around this love relationship and this love relationship. And... Uh, I always find that's a good summary, and that sort of sets the stage for what we're talking about this morning. In Mark chapter 5, there's a story, and it begins actually with um, verse 1. Well, no, I, I meant to say verse 35 of chapter 4, just to give you the context. Now, Jesus had told the disciples that they were to cross the sea. And in crossing the sea, they encountered... Uh, a storm that came up from nowhere, just a, a furious storm. When they started out, they were probably clipping along. They had the sail up and everything was fine. And then just this diabolical storm seemed to just come down from the mountains of Lebanon. And out of nowhere, the wind began to howl. They had to drop the sail. The water started coming in. It was almost like these arms were coming up from the deep to swallow them. And the night grew black and and they're bailing the boat as fast as they can. And the boat was mostly full of experienced fishermen, seamen. They knew and they feared for their lives, which tells you this was a ferocious storm. And like Jonah, Jesus was asleep in the boat during the storm. And like Jonah, they woke up Jesus and they said, Master, care us not that we perish. I think probably some lightning had flashed and they saw him asleep there in the back on the tackling. And like Jonah, Jesus was in the lowest part of the boat. And when he was awakened, they said, don't you care that we're perishing? You remember the captain woke up Jonah 
And he said, carest not, why arisest thou sleep, or carest not that we're perishing? Pray to your God that we perish not, is actually what he said. There are a lot of similarities in that, those two stories. That's why Jesus said, no sign will be given but the sign of Jonah. So Jesus stands up, and he quickly takes in what's going on. Probably being human, it took him a moment to get his scruples together. You ever wake up and are you perfectly alert? And he looks around, he takes it in, and he just, I can just picture him hanging on to the mast with one hand, and he raises his other hand, and he basically says, Shalom. He doesn't scream and yell like some Pentecostal preacher at the elements, as you've maybe heard it portrayed. He speaks peace. Does the Lord have to scream to get things to obey? When God created the world, did he say, let there be light? Did he have to do that? I think sometimes we substitute volume for substance. He just spoke. Peace. And all of a sudden, the waves flattened out. The water became perfectly glassy. And that, you know, the Bible says the disciples were really scared during the storm. But you know, it says now after the storm is gone, they are exceedingly afraid. Because now they're realizing that if they were ever afraid of the storm, there's someone in the boat that's more powerful than the storm, and that scared them. So, you have the picture now? It's dark, the water's glassy, the clouds part, they can see the moon reflecting off the glassy water. They have no wind, so they have to row. But when you're rowing, you know, sailing, I've done a lot of sailing, you sort of have to turn a little bit where the wind blows, and you tack back and forth. Rowing, you can pick a point and go. And so, Jesus, for some reason, directed them to a desolate section of the Sea of Galilee, sort of in the southeast shore. It was a place called Decapolis. It had been established by Alexander the Great, Deca, ten polis cities. And they start rowing the boat over there, and they don't know why, because it's not a big Jewish settlement. I mean, there's no one to preach to. It's not a pretty place. For like, you know, the, when he did the Sermon on the Mount, and probably flowers and meadows around. But as they get closer to the shore, the sun is now coming up at this point, and something very extraordinary happens. Now let's go to verse 1 of chapter 5. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit, who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, no, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains, and he was in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. But when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran to him and worshipped him. Now, that doesn't sound like um, what demons would want to do, but whatever was left in this man came to Jesus when he saw him from afar. All right, I, I want you to just pause there. Go to Luke, please. Luke chapter 8, same story, Luke's version. By the way, this is, story is found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. One difference you're going to find is in the Gospel of Matthew, it says there are two men. Mark and Luke says there was a man. And I don't believe that's really a contradiction in the Bible. Um, I believe that there were two men. One of them probably was not very well known. He was more in the background. He was not the one who spoke necessarily or spoke very much. And so some of the gospel writers really talked about one man, but there were actually two there. One was more prominent. 
So you know, hopefully that won't shake your faith. I tell the story from the perspective of the one man because he sort of represents everybody. Luke chapter 8, verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gadarenes that is opposite Galilee. It's on the opposite side of where Jesus ministered. And when he stepped on land, there met him a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time, and he wore no clothes. Nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. And when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him. And with a loud voice he said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and he was kept under guard, bound with chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds and was driven by the devil, the demons, into the wilderness. And Jesus asked him, saying, What is your name? And he said, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. All right, you got the picture now? Uh, this is a pretty, they make a good spooky story, really, when you think about it. Tell around the campfire. You come up to this shore, and it's a cemetery. And I imagine the disciples, it's not fully light yet, but they can see the silhouettes of the tombs against the backdrop of the rising sun there on the eastern hills. And they're thinking, why did Jesus tell us to come here? This place is unclean. Uh, in, in the Jewish mind, there are a few things that are unclean. One is the dead are unclean. Uh, there are pigs that are snorting and grazing up on the hillside. They're unclean. It was a pagan area. They're unclean. And so they get out reluctantly. They probably are going up the shore looking for driftwood to build a fire to dry off their shivering bodies because they got totally drenched during the storm that night before. I doubt they're all dry yet. And as they had just come forth from the ship, they hear this blood-curdling scream that just sends chills down their body. Their nerves are already frazzled. They've been up all night. And, you know, they're already still scared. The Bible says they were afraid in the storm. Then they were really afraid when Jesus calmed the storm. And now they're terrified because this creature comes running out of one of the tombs. And it's a real sight to see. It's long matted hair full of sticks and twigs and grime and beard and his eyes are glaring and wild. It's foaming at the mouth and gnashing his teeth. Comes charging towards him from his naked body. He's dangling chains off his neck, his wrists, his ankles. And he's covered with scars and, and blood and wounds from gouging himself. And he comes charging towards them out of a tomb, no less. So, okay, let's pause here. <laughs> what would you do? Do you think that the disciples said, I can just picture Andrew. Andrew was always making friends everywhere he went. And Andrew says to Peter, hey, brother, got a track? Let's witness. <laughs> let's give him a Bible study. Let's preach a sermon. That's probably the furthest thing from their mind. The thing they were thinking about was self-preservation. And I, I have this picture in my mind that all of the disciples, when they first saw this man, they dropped the driftwood and they went running towards the boat. 
and they are pushing the boat out in the water, rowing, diving into the boat. I can just see them diving into the boat, <laughs> paddling with their hands and kicking with their feet. And, and just to give you perspective, you probably could have dropped a rope off the back of the boat and water skied Judas behind the boat because <laughs> they were going so fast. You just see this rooster tail going up from behind the boat as they're leaving. And they had no motor back then. So they were getting out of there. I mean, they were driven by just total terror. And then probably they got, you know, 100 yards off from shore and they did a head count and there were 12 in the boat. Should have been 13. Jesus was not in the boat. He did not run. And so, you know, they must have been close enough to hear what happened because they recorded it in all three Gospels. They must have heard some of this conversation, so they weren't that far out. Maybe they came cautiously paddling closer to shore as they saw this man running towards Christ, and they thought, we really shouldn't leave him like this. <laughs> I mean, how are we going to ever live with ourselves? So maybe they began to make their way back in, and they saw what happened. All right, I want to stop here before I go on with the story, and I just want you to have the picture of this man in your mind. He's living in the tombs, he's naked, he's covered with chains, wounds and, and scars, filled with demons, surrounded by pigs, and uh, that man represents the human race. That man represents you and me, what angels see before we're saved. Now you think, Pastor Derek, that's getting a little carried away. You don't know how pure heaven is. You don't know how sane and holy heaven is. Compared to heaven, that's what angels see when they look at this world. Uh, and there's a lot of symbolic meanings here in the story. For instance, all right, where did he live? In the tombs. Who typically lives in a tomb? It's really a trick question. Do dead people live in tombs? <laughs> Everybody says that. <laughs> you ever seen a dead person live in a tomb? I have. I went to Egypt years ago, and they've got a place there called the City of the Dead. Now, they've got a place called the City of the Dead also in Korea, where it's a graveyard that they've, they've made this graveyard very nice. They actually have air conditioning in some of the tombs, and they've got hot and cold running water because they are so superstitious. It's a Chinese cemetery in Korea. And, uh, and they actually pin money up there for the people. And they think that their ancestors are living in these tombs. And they try and make them as comfortable as possible. But nobody's living in there. But in Cairo, they have a place called the City of the Dead that is an ancient cemetery. And as you know, Cairo's got like 18, 20 million people now. It's one of the biggest cities in the world. A lot of homelessness. They had this cemetery that was just you know, hundreds of acres that had big tombs and mausoleums for the rich that had rooms and chambers and things in them. And all the poor began to move in there. And they kept chasing them out and they kept moving back in. And it got to where they got tired of chasing them out and they just sort of let them live there. They became more and more comfortable. After a while, the city said, look, it's not very sanitary. They provided some kind of sanitation for them. Eventually, they provided electricity for them. And they said, you know, we don't really authorize that they live here. But then they provided mail for them. <laughs> and so now a tour stop, if one of the places you can see when you go to Cairo is the city of the dead. And you go by the cemetery, and here's this, this big, vast cemetery. And it looks like all the, you know, the distorted shapes and buildings and tombs of a cemetery. And there's all these people living in there in the tombs. 
And they got their clothes strung out to dry between the, 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 the tombs and the, you know, some of them are elaborate mausoleums with rooms and shelter and everything. And you go in and you look in some of them and there's this big room and in the middle of the room is this coffin and the body's still in the coffin. And they use the lid of the coffin as a dining table. So there's always one extra guest there <laughs> for every meal. Can you imagine that? What does that do to a kid to grow up surrounded with death like that? Well, that's sort of how our world is. Our world's a cemetery. Who knows the first few words in Genesis? Can you quote them? Who knows the, fast, the last five words in Genesis? In a coffin in Egypt. It starts in a garden. It ends in a coffin. Starts with life and creation. Because of sin, it ends with death. And then you go to Exodus and it talks about the answer, deliverance from slavery and death. So the whole Bible is talking about how to get back to the garden. But here this man is living among the tombs and that's like this world. This world is, it's like a cemetery. I mean, everyone's under this death sentence. He that has the son has life. He that doesn't have the son, he has death. And what did Jesus often say? He said, uh, let the dead bury the dead. First time I read that in the Bible, I thought, you know, I grew up totally in the world, and, and I concocted this image in my mind of zombies conducting funerals. Let the dead bury the dead. I thought, what does that mean? But, uh, you know, now you understand, of course, it's talking about those who are without Christ are spiritually dead. Paul said that if you're not saved, you're dead in trespasses and sins. So this man lives in the tombs. He represents someone without life. Uh, I've got a friend who uh, was in jail. I, I've been in jail and I've been in, I've been in jail as an inmate and I've been in prison visiting. I've never been sentenced to prison, praise the Lord, but I've got friends that were in prison and uh, they tell me you can always spot the lifers. There's a whole different attitude. Those who've got, you know, 10, 15 years, they think they've got some hope, they think they've got some life, they have a whole different look about them. But if someone's a lifer and if they haven't found the Lord, says they've just got a look of hopelessness uh, about them. And you know, most people in this world, they're like lifers. They know they're marching towards the grave from the time they're born. They're just trying to get as much selfish pleasure as they can. They don't have any purpose. They don't have any hope. And uh, that's why what's happening here is really important because we know better. We do have hope. All right, what else is this man doing? Let me think. What's he wearing? Well, he's wearing chains. Let's talk about that first, and then we'll talk about the nothing. Um, what do chains represent? What did he do with the chains? Well, it's a couple things. One is, it represents the, the slavery and bondage. But he broke the chains every time someone tried to restrict him. It also represents his rebellion. Every time anyone tried to confine or restrict him, he'd go into this diabolical frenzy, and he'd, with supernatural power, he'd break the chains. And I don't know if I'd ever want to see that. Uh, but I've seen demon-possessed people before, and it's pretty scary. Uh, even police have said that they've gone to arrest and try to restrain people that were on certain drugs before, and it took four or five officers to hold down one person, and they tased them, and they sprayed them, and they maced them, and they just couldn't restrain them. And that's just from, like, PCP or some drug. Uh, so it's not hard to imagine 
a person who is filled with legions of devils, um, how out of control they would be. So every time anyone in the community, I mean, he probably had some family that lived around there somewhere. They tried to restrain or confine him. He'd go into one of his episodes and he'd just break any kind of chain of restraint. He was filled with demons. You know, those who are not saved are, first of all, they're enslaved by sin. The Bible says we're holden by the cords of our sin. I heard about a, a man who is in prison in France years ago who was arrested for burglary. And uh, being a blacksmith by trade, he knew that most chains are made with some defect. And he began to examine the chains that held him there in the jail, searching for some defect. And pretty soon he recognized his own stamp on the chains. He used to weld his chains so that there would be no defect or no gap in any of the links. And he knew that there was no way out. He was basically incarcerated and held with his own chains that he had made as a blacksmith. And you know, most of us were holding with the cords of our sin. And we usually, you ever heard the expression, give him enough rope and he'll hang himself? We usually hang ourselves. But this man just wanted no restriction, no rules, and uh, ends up hurting himself by it. Now, and we also mentioned a minute ago, other than the chains, what's he wearing? Nothing, Nothing. he's naked. In the Bible, what does clothing represent? I hear people say that all the time, but th that's not really accurate. It does not represent righteousness. It depends on whose clothes they are. All of our clothing, like filthy rags. And don't ever forget what clothing represents in the Bible. You'd be surprised how many times you'll see it play into the story. It's like blind Bartimaeus. Jesus calls him. It says, casting aside his garment, he came to Jesus. Well, what kind of garment does a blind beggar wear? Safe to say filthy rags? You can't even see your stains because you're blind. And casting aside his garment, he comes to Jesus just like he is. Um, when that man fell among thieves on the parable of the Good Samaritan, how did the thieves leave him? Wounded and naked. How did the devil leave Adam and Eve? When he got done with them, they lost their robes of righteousness. They were naked. They tried to make their own out of fig leaves. That'd be like our self-righteousness. I think it's interesting that when Jesus died on the cross, when he was tried, the high priest tore his garments and then the veil in the temple ripped, meaning the old priesthood in the old temple had passed away. But the very fact that high priest that condemned him tore his garments is a sign of the unrighteousness of his office for what he had done. When the prodigal son comes home covered with his filthy rags, the father puts the best robe on him to cover his, his filth and his nakedness. And so it's very significant in the Bible, except most people, when they find out they're naked, they want to do something about it. Now, don't forget, the devil wants to strip us. What he did to Adam and Eve, what that, those thieves did to the man there in the parable of the Good Samaritan. Um, how many of you remember, it's, is it Acts chapter 19, the seven sons of Sceva, who um, they tried to cast out this man who was demon-possessed. They heard Paul was doing it in the name of Jesus. So they said, well, let's try this. You know, if you just say it right, it'll work. 
And he said, uh, they went to this demon-possessed man, these seven young men, and they said, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches about, come out. And the demon laughed at them. He leapt upon them. He beat them all up. He wounded them, and they left wounded and naked. He stripped them. So the devil wants to strip us of our righteousness. The thing is, most people, I mean, if right now you should suddenly discover that your clothes were gone. You know the story of the king's clothes that uh, Hans Christian Andersen wrote? Uh, I always thought it's a very creative story. There's this uh, king, and uh, a couple of tailors are um, con men, and they tell the king, we're going to build you the most fabulous clothing that any monarch has ever worn, and you can wear it in the parade, and he pays them in advance this big sum, but they gamble it all away, and the king's going to kill them. And they said, oh, we've prepared these clothes. These clothes are so special. They're so beautiful that only fools can't see them. And so the tailors prepare everybody in the court and said, we've prepared some clothes. When we unveil them, only foolish people can't see these clothes. But they are the most beautiful, splendid, regal clothes you've ever seen. So they walk in with great pomp. They unveil this invisible clothes. And nobody wants to say, I can't see them. Because they're going to look like a fool. And so word spreads, if you can't see the clothes, you're a fool. And it's, of course, that would be out of, it wouldn't be cool to say, ah, oh, I don't see any clothes. Oh, you're a fool. And so they, uh, the king doesn't want to look like the biggest fool of all. And so they unveil it, and he goes, wow, that's really something. And all the court's going, wow, they're just gorgeous, you know. <laughs> and so here, let us put them on. They make like the tailors, make like they're putting them on, and they're, they're trimming and, and adjusting everything. They stand back and, wow, there's never been a king like this. You've got to wear this in the parade. <laughs> and so the king, he finally, he thinks that he really does look beautiful because everyone's going, ooh, ah, you know. And he thinks, I'm not going to tell him I can't see him. So he's just in his underwear. And so pretty soon they have a parade and word has spread the, through the empire that the king has got these clothes that are just the most magnificent clothes, but uh, some people might not be able to see them, but that means they're foolish because wise people can see them. And so pretty soon the king's going up the street and word spread now that it's, you know, you, only the cool in people can see the clothes. And everyone says, oh, boy, that's just, look at those, it's glitters, iridescent, beautiful clothing. Finally some boy blurts out, how come the king's naked? <laughs> <You know? laughs> and... Uh, Pretty soon everyone began to laugh. They realized the truth of it and the folly of the whole thing. That it was just, you know, I see certain fads come along among young people. And some drug-crazed nut in show business, some music icon, will wear or do something totally absurd. And others will say, oh, but it's cool. And because word spreads that it's cool, Everybody thinks that it's cool, and they start dressing in the most impractical, outrageous. <coughs> Why would you want to have a purple mohawk? Well, what's the point of that? It's not practical. It takes so much time and money to try and keep that thing pointing straight up in the air. And I'm not just saying it because I can't grow one. I'm, I'm saying it because you really have to admit that, hey, what's the purpose of that? It's not very practical. <laughs> Draw attention to yourself. Or, I hope you don't get caught up in that. My mother was uh, always into fashion, and uh, she was the first to do anything. Um, for, for a while there in New York, when we lived in New York City, and she would go to these Hollywood parties, my mother spent $300, which was a lot of money back then. I'm talking you know, 35, 40 years ago. It was over 40 years ago. 
on a paper dress that you can only wear one time. And I said, Mom, she showed it to my brother, and I thought, really? I said, why do you want to do that? So what if it tears? I said, what if you fall in the pool? I said, well, <laughs> I was really scared for my mom. She's going to wear this paper. Oh, she said, it's so cool. It's so cool. And my mother one time had a piece of jewelry. It was a live beetle that she pinned. Someone had glued jewels on the top of this beetle. She put it in a box where it ate some sugar or something. She gave it, and she'd pin it, and it would walk around with its jewels. And walk around with his jewels on, on her, uh, even at sound effects, on her, uh, her dress. And just to give you an idea, but a paper dress. And I thought, well, what would happen if, if it rained? You know, a few years ago, there's a point to what I'm saying. You, you won't forget this. A few years ago, at uh, a Super Bowl, the halftime program, Janet Jackson and someone else, I can't remember. Justin Timberlake, that's what I was going to say. Now, I want you to know, I did not see it. I don't watch sports, but I sure heard a lot about it afterward. That during the halftime show, primetime television, with everybody watching, she unveiled herself and exposed her breasts. And created a lot of outrage. And, and you know, the way they came back and explained it is that it wasn't intentional. They said, it was a wardrobe malfunction. I thought, that's pretty clever, wardrobe malfunction. <laughs> and you know, the more I think about that, I think, you know, Adam and Eve sort of had a wardrobe malfunction, didn't they? <laughs> and. Uh, there's others in the Bible that have had wardrobe malfunctions. You know, the Bible talks about a young man in the book of Mark who started out following Jesus when he was first arrested. It doesn't name him. It probably was John Mark. And when the guards saw that he was following Jesus, they turned around to uh, grab him. And all he was wrapped up in a bed sheet. And he fled naked. He left Jesus naked. And you know, when you run away from Jesus, that's how you go. A wardrobe malfunction. A few years ago, they had a, um, a check scam where some criminals discovered that there was this chemical that you could paint on paper, and it wouldn't take effect for four or five hours. But four or five hours later, the paper that you painted it on would absolutely disintegrate into powder. And so they would take these checks to the bank. They would sign the checks, and the, um, they maybe had some money in the account. They'd get their cash. But before the checks could be processed so the cash is actually withdrawn from the account, they'd disintegrate. And they wouldn't know what to do. Well, now they've got checks and balances to uh, avoid that. But what if you came to church this morning or to our meeting this morning, and you didn't know someone painted your clothes before you got here? And all of a sudden, right now, the clock ran out. And what you're wearing was to disintegrate. It's a scary thought, isn't it? <laughs> what would you do? Would you get up and run? I, yeah, come on now. Would you just sit there and say, well, I want to wait till the sermon's over. It's just so <laughs> captivating. <laughs> Don't want to create a distraction. <laughs> I mean, are we all wearing clothes, no matter what the climate is, for temperature control? Or is, does that have something to do with modesty? 
by saying, we do something about it. So, if God says we're naked, do we care? Don't we want to do something about it? This man was naked. He didn't care. You know, one of the problems with the church today, the Bible says we are poor and wretched and miserable and blind and naked. But we don't seem to care very much. I don't know if I have time to tell you this story. I think I, I, think I have time. Um, when I lived up in the mountains, this is not in the caveman book. Um, so some of you have heard me tell this, so you'll have to just bear with it again. I didn't wear clothes. I'm not proud of that. Uh, Karen says she's always embarrassed when I tell this story, but she's not here right now. <laughs> and um, don't tell her she's coming Friday. <laughs> But, you know, this is back in the hippie era. I was not the only one. I was living up in the mountains. And a lot of people up there didn't wear clothes. And it's just like we said, we're going to be one at nature. You know, we don't want these inhibitions. And this is just, uh, it's, it's a, uh, a guilt trip society's put on us. And, I mean, it's warm and you're out in nature. Let's Adam and Eve were naked. And we had all these dumb rationalizations for what we were doing. But when we went up in the hills and I lived up there like a hermit for about a year and a half, uh, just I never wore clothes. There was some time in the winter, it actually got very cold. I did have like a poncho that I wore. And when I'd go down to Palm Springs, I'd hike down to town once or twice a week. I had a backpack. And I actually had a suntan everywhere except right here on my shoulders from the backpack. I had two white lines right here. And I'd hike down to Palm Springs. I kept a pair of shorts and a t-shirt in uh, my backpack. When I got to this rock just outside of Palm Springs city limits, I'd put on my clothes. And then I'd go into town. And one morning, it was springtime, and I was really excited because I woke up. I felt really good. I woke up early. I wanted to go to town. I already had money. I used to have to go stop at the market and panhandle, and then I'd go do my business. But I already had money. And uh, the most exciting thing for us when you live in the desert was you'd get down to Palm Springs, and they had thrifty drugstores, had three scoops, a nickel a scoop of ice cream. And when you have no refrigeration and you live up in the hills, and, you know, to go down to town out of the desert and eat ice cream, it was like, I mean, that was the highlight of my week. And I had a lot of money. I don't know, I might have $20, which was a lot for me back then. So I thought, man, I'm just going to go right to Thrifty. So I cut across the desert, and it was a beautiful morning. I remember I went across, climbing across the ridge down to town. The sun was coming up, everything. It was golden. My skin was golden, and there's these cactus flowers were out, and I just felt really good. And, but when I got down to the valley floor, and the trail I would normally take the Mayfair Market, I didn't take. I cut right across the desert towards Thrifty. And I met up with another trail. And I was so focused on getting into town on my ice cream that, and I have nothing on but my boots. I didn't wear shoes because there's cactus all over up there. <laughs> and uh, my backpack. And I started going off into Palm Springs city limits. Oblivious, because you know, at first, normally when you take off your clothes up in the hills, you think, yeah, this ain't right, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> but after you live like that for weeks and months, you really get where you don't think about it. You hear me? You can get where you're naked and get used to it. And I came within the vicinity of a Catholic church, and I don't know what they were doing, but. They were, it was before or after some confirmation or communion or something they were doing. And there was this Hispanic family, and you guessed it, father, mother, and two girls. 
that were like between eight or 10 years of age. And they decided to walk outside of the church parking lot into the desert. I mentioned it was spring. The desert flowers were out, and maybe they were taking a nature walk or something. They just never imagined they'd get so much nature that day. <laughs> and so I'm just I'm going as fast as I can. I'm walking, walking. And you know, the sagebrush is only about that high. And it's kind of all over, and your trails all go between it. And I'm hiking along, and I kind of see them in the distance. And when we get to where you know, they're in plain view, it's just though maybe we're 25, 30 feet away from me, I came around the trail, and there I am. And this family looks at me, and this shock goes through the family. And you know, the mother's eyes get real big, and her mouth drops open. And this all happened in a fraction of a second. And uh, she closed her eyes and turned her head away. And in, at the same time, the father kind of took her head and was like protecting her. Gonna, pulled his head and the two little girls, they went through their own little just shock and big eyes and, and they each snapped around and kind of you know cowered, each grabbing one of their father's legs or hugging him. And the man closed his eyes or turned away. <laughs> and my instinctive, I feel really dumb, but my instinctive reaction was I looked over my shoulder to see, <laughs> I thought, what is it? And we'll flee together. <laughs> and I mean, I'm serious. I had no idea there was anything wrong with me. And then it just only took a moment. I looked over there and thought, oh, I forgot to put my clothes on. Because I didn't go by the rock where I used to always stop. It just didn't even occur to me. And I was so mortified. And I, you know, not to mention how they must have felt. And, Girls are probably still in therapy somewhere. Right now. <laughs> I, I feel really bad. You know, we're laughing about it now, but it wasn't funny then. It was, uh, I, I felt really bad because I had deeply offended this family. I mean, they wanted to go have a nice walk. And, and um, I knew something was wrong. I felt fine until I saw them. They knew something was wrong. I felt fine until I saw myself through their eyes, and then I knew something was wrong. You got me? We often go through life, we think we're fine, until we see ourselves through God's eyes, and he says, you're naked. Now, as soon as I saw them, I went cowering behind the next sagebrush, and I put on my clothes. I wanted to do something about it right away. If God says, you're naked, and you don't care, what would, what's more important? If you had to choose between being clothed before God and clothed before man, any of you ever read the book, The Hiding Place, by Corey Ten Boom? I was in Poland a couple weeks ago, and I went to Auschwitz. Now, Corrie ten Boom was actually at Ravensbrück, but I saw the concentration camps there, and oh, it, it's just it's horrifying what happened. But they tell this one story in, in the book about how these women, and these were not even Jewish women, they were um, some uh, uh, from Dutch. Yeah, thank you very much. And um, they made them strip. They took all their clothes, and they have to walk by all these guards. And then Betsy said to her sister, Corey, she said, Jesus went through this for us. He was stripped. And she related everything. It's like they couldn't take away her dignity because she still had the robe of Christ's righteousness. Even though she was naked before man, she still was able to hold her head up because she said, praise you, Lord, that I'm able to suffer and to share in Christ's sufferings, to experience what he experienced. And just what a, you know, what a unique way to look at something like that. Well, this man's naked. Also, we see... It says he's cutting himself with stones. Now, when I first read that, I thought that meant that 
he tripped and he fell down, he cut himself. But no, that's, most scholars agree, it means that he proactively was picking up sharp rocks and cutting himself. Now, I didn't know this until a few years ago. I guess I've just been living um, out of the touch, but that there's a lot of young people that have a problem, predominantly with girls, some boys, of self-mutilation where they cut themselves. And I understand that at the, at the heart of it is they're trying to feel something. Uh, and maybe they're, you know, they're feeling guilty and they're trying to, you know, in the Catholic Church, they used to flog themselves. Or I, I'm not sure what's going on psychologically, but I understand it's growing. You know, God doesn't want you to hurt your body. Jesus came to heal. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. He wants you to take care of your body. He wants you to realize your body is a sacred vessel for his spirit. The devil, on the other hand, he wants you to mutilate and hurt your body. And I'm not just talking about people that might have this rare problem of cutting. You know, the Bible says when the prophets of Baal wanted to get their God's attention, they leapt upon the altar and they cut themselves with lances. They pierced themselves until the blood ran out. Part of devil worship is self-mutilation. Now, when you look in the world around you, is it just my imagination? Or are people piercing themselves now more than ever? And I don't like to go through this story without at least making this point. Don't ever be ashamed of the Seventh-day Adventist position that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit and that we're not supposed to be piercing our bodies, let alone hanging minerals all over our bodies, let alone tattooing. I mean, the Bible's really clear. It says, you shall not make cuttings in your flesh. You shall not print tattoo marks on you. I mean, that can't be any more clear. And that's, by the way, the New King James Version. Most other modern versions realize that's what it means. And, you know, if you've done that, well, the Lord will accept you the way you are, but that's not his plan. Uh, the way I understand it is in the beginning when God created us, he created us with the appropriate number of holes. And he doesn't want us to add to that number or take away from it. Isn't that right? Your body's a temple of the Holy Spirit. What would you think if someone showed up in a beautiful marble temple dedicated to God and took a jackhammer to it and started, what are you doing? Well, I just thought a hole would look good right here. It's, it's just, I don't think people realize, you know, this story is telling us, what do angels see? What are we doing? People, and it says always, day and night, he was in the mountains crying, always crying, and cutting himself with stones. You know, people out there, they're just, they're, their hearts are broken, they're empty, they're lonely, they, they have a lot of pain, they don't know what the purpose is. And even though most people put up a good front, a lot of people are just crying inside. And that's like that man. And they, we keep hurting ourselves. You know, most animals, if you take a... Uh, an elephant. And if you put an elephant inside an electric fence, and you know, you might even five, ten acres electric fence, he'll touch where the electric fence is once or twice, he'll find out where it is, and he'll never touch it again. Horses, they'll learn where it is, and they'll never, they won't touch it, they won't go near it. It hurts them. They figure that out, and they stop doing it. A pig, you can put a pig in an electric fence. They'll touch it a few times, they'll find out where it is. They're pretty smart. You can then take the fence up so it's not even there anymore. Just open field. Try to chase the pig out of the area where the fence used to be. He remembers so well that even when the fence is gone, you can't, he says, no, whenever I stepped over there, I got zapped. I'm not even going there anymore. <laughs> even though the fence is gone, I don't know if they made a connection. They don't want to do what hurts themselves. But humans will keep on grabbing the wire 
until they're laying down in the middle with their hair standing up or falls out. <laughs> but we just keep doing these things over and over again that hurt ourselves. What did they say a definition of insanity is? Keep doing the same thing, expecting different results. It's like when you, you know, you ever seen someone that gets stuck in the sand with a car? Instead of getting out and dealing with it, they keep gunning the engine and get stuck deeper and deeper and deeper. Well, maybe if you rev it faster. And, uh, you know, that's often how we try and deal with it. Well, I want to go back to my story here. So we're back in Luke. And it says, they begged him that he would, oh, I, you know, Jesus said, what is your name? And they said, Legion. I should probably stop here. Was this man born possessed by an army of devils? See, this is a real story, and it also has something it represents. No, this man uh, was born probably a normal, healthy baby. How do you get to the place where you're possessed by a legion of devils? <laughs> do you just wake up one day and the devil moves in? Can he do that? I, I believe the way it happens is that as you surrender your will to the devil, little by little, that the devil and his minions gain access to you. Now, you know what scares me? This is the most demon-possessed man in the Bible. But if this man could be possessed with a legion of devils, if Mary Magdalene can be possessed with seven devils, does it stand to reason that there could be people around us all the time that have varying numbers of devils and they're able to even conduct themselves as though they're civilized? How many times have you heard the news reporters They'll push the microphone up into some neighbor's face and they'll say, this serial killer, what kind of person was he? And what do they always say? He was a nice guy. He just, we know, normal, hard work, quiet, had no idea. Well, in his spare time, you know, he was killing people and doing all these bizarre things or being a cannibal or something like, nice, able to fool everybody, but he's full of devils. So it's scary when you think. This man, he had to get maybe 12,000 before it became obvious. How many people struggle with their devils? It's not obvious yet. But you know what? The most important point is, is where I started out. Can you think of anybody further away from Jesus than this man? Name somebody in the Bible that was further from God than this man. There isn't any. I'm just saying that as a rhetorical question. Think about it. Running around naked, living in a cemetery, covered with blood, surrounded by pigs, foaming at the mouth, glaring eyes. I mean, he's living like an animal. He came to Jesus like he was. Did Jesus accept him? So, if that man with his condition and that army of devils that possessed him, whatever was left in that man when Jesus came to shore, the devils probably were talking in his head. You know, I've, I've dealt a little bit with people. I don't want to talk to people or deal with people that are demon-possessed. That's not my ministry. And I would be very suspicious, if I were you, of any pastor that goes around and on his business card, it says, demons are us. We cast out devils. I don't see anywhere in the Bible when any apostle or, or prophet specialized in that. I don't think they wanted to have anything to do with it. It was sort of like a last resort. So just be careful about that. If people focus on that. But, uh, I, you know, I've run into it before, and these folks say, you know, I... I, I hear these voices in my head all, these time, all this time. And I think this man, when Jesus came to shore, there was probably a cacophony of voices in his head, all these demons saying, oh, that's Jesus. What are we going to do now? He's going to cast us out. It's the Son of God. And this man realized that was his only hope. And whatever he still possessed of his own will, 
He chose to come to Christ. He didn't even know how to pray. He opened his mouth. The demons spoke. He couldn't dress up right before he came. He came like he was. And he threw himself at Jesus' feet and opened his mouth probably to say, Lord, save me. Lord, help me. And Jesus knew what he was asking for. But the demons spoke. And they said, you know, what have we to do with thee, Jesus? We know who you are. Have you come to cast us out before our time? And uh, it says, they begged him, I'm in verse 31, he would not command them to go out into the abyss. Now there was a herd, by the way, the word abyss there, this is just very important for theology, it's the exact same word you find in Revelation 20 for bottomless pit. It means the nothingness. During the 1,000 years, the devil and his angels have nobody to possess. They're in the nothingness. That's the bottomless pit. I mean, what do devils do when they have no one to possess? So they say to Jesus, could we at least possess the pigs up on the hill there? If not a man, how about pigs? They had something planned that they thought was going to um, help still get the last dig in, so to speak. Now there was a herd of many swine feeding on the mountain, and they begged him that he would permit them to enter them. And he permitted them. Why would Jesus do that? I'll tell you in a minute. Then the demons went out of the man and they entered the swine. You read in Matthew, it says there are 2,000 of them. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. Then those who fed them saw what had happened and they fled and they told it in the city and in the country. I just want you to have the picture again, what this must have looked like. Here's this man. He's come to Jesus just like he is and the demons are speaking. And Jesus says, okay, go out of him. And he gives the demons permission to enter this herd of pigs. And one reason he might have done that is because devils are unclean, pigs are unclean, 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 they go together. And so this man probably went through some kind of convulsion. You remember when Jesus cast the devil out of the boy who used to throw him in the fire and on, in the water? Mark chapter 9, every now and then he says sometimes he tries to destroy him in the fire, sometimes in the water. Two opposites. The devil doesn't care whether you fall off the liberal side or the conservative side, just as long as you fall off. And that boy went through a convulsion and fell down like he was dead, and that was one devil. Can you imagine what this man looked like? He probably looked like he had a bunch of cats fighting inside a burlap bag. And he fell down and this vortex of demons came out of him, this tornado. And it moves uh, across the hill and lands on these swine. And all of a sudden you see all these pigs that had been formerly peacefully wallowing or grazing up on the hill there. Their eyes suddenly get wide so you can see the whites of their eyes. They begin to squeal and snort. They jump up and they go into this panic that is demon-induced and they charge as fast as they can run, and a pig can outrun a man, towards this steep precipice that falls off into the rocks and into the water, where there's a deep spot. And they probably died tumbling down on the rocks because pigs can swim. If they had just dove off, they probably would have swum. But they died in the fall. And um, why did Jesus allow that? Well, for a couple of reasons. One is, the guy's taking care of the pigs. If shepherds take care of sheep, Pigards take care of pigs, right? I guess I call them the swineherds take care of pigs. They went and told the community, and they got the whole town aware of what was happening. The other reason I think Jesus allowed this is because they were not raising those pigs as pets. They're raising them for food, and Jesus cares more about people than pigs, and they're unclean. 
And there's a third reason. I think this is the most important. You notice this is in all three Gospels. Everybody in Israel knew this story. The Sea of Galilee is not that big. If you know anything about Northern California, we got Lake Tahoe. Sea of Galilee is a little bigger than that. You can see across it uh, on a clear day, and uh, it's, you, know, you could swim it. 2,000 swollen pork chops floating in a Jewish pond got the attention of everybody in the country because it basically defiled the whole lake. Can you imagine that? You're a Jewish fisherman and you're fishing and all of a sudden this bloated pig carcass comes. What they must have done? All 2,000 of them. Everybody knew this story. What happened? What caused this? And they all went back. Well, Jesus cast these demons out of this man because he cares more about people. See, it sent a message. Then it tells us that Jesus was in this man. I'm sorry, Jesus was sitting there, uh, or Jesus was probably on the stern of the boat. This man was sitting at his feet. The people came out of the city and they found Jesus talking to the man. He's now clothed and in his right mind. I really appreciate that Joe Cruz would say there's a connection between being clothed and being in your right mind. Something happened. And just like Mary sat at his feet, and heard the word, Jesus is now telling this man how to avoid getting into the same trouble again. Now, I want to just, they're telling me that I've only got uh, five minutes left. So I wanted to summarize this real quick. When Jesus was standing there with that demon-possessed man on the shore, you have exhibit A of your two choices. Everybody here fits into this picture. In Jesus, you have what happens when God fills a man. God came to earth. He filled a man. His name was Jesus. He is the image of God. He is the perfect plan for God in man. Does that make sense to everybody? In this other man that was demon-possessed, the devil's got a plan for your life, too. People sometimes think that he has no plan. The devil's got a plan. He wants to put this image in man. You got this picture? Naked, self-destructive, wild, out of control, a little more than a beast. He wanted to efface the image of God from man. That man there on the shore is the devil's plan for man. Now, when the two of them come together, something interesting happens. This man is the perfect exhibit of what is unclean. According to the Jews, living in graveyard, unclean, touching the dead, unclean. Blood, cutting himself with stones, he's unclean. Surrounded by pigs, he's unclean. Living in a Gentile community, he's unclean. Everything about it says unclean, unclean, unclean. Jesus crosses an ocean, a stormy ocean, to reach this one man. He not only calms the raging sea, he calms a raging soul. And he saves him. And then it says he was clothed. Where did he get his clothes? I think that Christ took him down to the water. First of all, when Jesus told the demons to come out, I think the chains fell off just like they did with Peter. He then takes him down to the water and he washes him. It's like baptism. I think Jesus took off his own robe and then covered his nakedness. Like that robe of righteousness. I don't think he carried a robe in his backpack. And then when the people from the community came, they said, Jesus, look, you know, it's awful expensive having you around. It's created this great financial disaster. We're going to have to get the government to bail out our big pork chops that we've lost now. And, and uh, they said, can you please leave? So what does Jesus do? If you ask Jesus to leave, he leaves. 
as he's leaving, this man says, Lord, let me go with you. I just want to be in the boat with you and the disciples. I don't want, I don't want this ever to happen again. And Jesus basically said, look, I've taught you what you need to get started. I want you to go and tell others what great thing God has done for you. As soon as he comes to Jesus, the story ends with him going for Jesus. Jesus crosses this ocean for that one man. It's like Christ crossed the cosmos of space for this one lost sheep, this world. And he will do that just for you. It tells you how precious every soul is. If he would do all that for this one man, ha, one man that everybody else considered hopeless. And if he could reach that one man and make him victorious, can he do that for us? So step one in the life of victory is wherever you are, no matter what your status is, no matter what your past is, no matter how many times you failed, you come to Jesus just like you are. And then allow him to set you free, and then he puts you to work immediately. He didn't say that you've got to go through nine months of training, though we do recommend that at AFCO. <laughs> he immediately put him to work. Amen? Amen? Why don't we stand? We'll close with prayer. Father in heaven, this is a wonderful story of victory. And it teaches us how much you love each one of us and to what lengths you will go for even one soul. One soul that would be declared hopeless by so many, you turned into a missionary. And Lord, I pray that each person can find hope and encouragement from this truth in your word. And that all of us will take those steps to come just as we are, to receive that robe of righteousness, that cleansing, that freedom, that you might break the chains that bind us. We pray for the outpouring of your spirit on this series and, and uh, each seminar around the compound and be with each person listening, Lord, both here and those who might be listening on tape, that our lives might be transformed into your image. We thank you and pray this in Christ's name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.